The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. As Jake mentioned earlier this morning, we are continuing to make our way through parts of the Old Testament book by book. This summer we've been doing those overviews which are, by necessity, uh, a high-level look at the structure and the themes of these books. We began earlier this summer looking at the wisdom literature, so Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, and the last several weeks looking at the major prophets. So we looked at Isaiah and Lamentations. We've been already doing our study through Jeremiah, so we're going to continue on that after the summer and through the end of this year. So we'll be skipping our overview sermon of Jeremiah for now, and we're going to continue here with Ezekiel. Now, as you've been studying along with us through the major prophets, you may begin to pick up on the same themes week after week, mainly God's judgments, uh, God's punishments and disciplines for Israel, for their rebellion, their wickedness, their idolatry, the warning of that impending judgment in the form of captivity, from the Assyrians to the north and Babylonian captivity from the south. And that theme may for you be getting a little tiresome. But these books are in the scriptures for us for a particular reason. And though they overlap thematically and deal with much of the same content and some of the same issues, each book presents a unique view of what God intends to teach us. And so it's important that we study each of books on their own merit, in their own light, so that we can receive from God uh, a word for his people each, from each book. That being said, let's pray together and ask for God's help in our remainder of our time, and then we'll dig into the, to the word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for your word, and ask God that you, for the next 35, 40 minutes, give us an insight into the revelation that is the book of Ezekiel. Help us, God, to see in it the the wonders and the beauty of the nature of your word and the work you've done, both on behalf of your people and in Christ for us. Help us to see the beauties of the cross and to be led to worship you. We pray, God, for those who are not here because they are traveling or they're sick. I think, Lord of Kendrick, particularly, would you give rest and encouragement to them. For those that are not here because of sin or neglect, God, we pray that you would, uh, by your Spirit, correct them, restore them to yourselves and to the church. Lord, we pray that, above all, you would be glorified in our lives and that to begin a work in our city, you would do so here starting with us. So we give all this to you and pray as always in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a position when you've tried to get somebody's attention and you just can't seem to snap them out of whatever they've been paying attention to? Parents of young kids almost certainly know what I'm talking about. If you know Shepard, you know that he can get hyper fixated on certain things. And especially for most kids, that thing is a screen that locks their attention to where bombs could be going off beside them, and they're almost oblivious to that fact. Several times during the course of the week, Brittany or I will try to get Shepard's attention, whether he's in a book or he's watching a show, and we have to almost wave our hands, clap our hands, make some loud noises, or get up into his face and say, Shepard, hey, and he'll look up, huh? And we can finally deliver the message or ask what we were asking him to do. But... Unfortunately, this isn't just relegated to children. Mind you, any adult with a screen can easily be as locked in and miss completely, oblivious to certain things that are going on around them. One popular thing that happened many years ago on the Internet was a video that went around of some basketball players dribbling a ball. And something on the video said, pay attention to the people passing the ball. And little did they know that while they were paying attention to the basketball players, there was a guy dressed in a bear costume moonwalking through the video, and nobody seemed to notice it on first sight. 
They had to go back and watch the video again. And it just shows you really the power of when your attention is focused on one area, it's easy to miss what's going on in another area. It's hard to get someone's attention when their focus is fixed somewhere else, like a screen, or in the case of Israel, on false worship. And so Ezekiel's job, as we study the book of Ezekiel, the high, the high takeaway here is that Ezekiel's job, he's commissioned by God as a prophet, who was someone sent by God to speak God's word to God's people, both as a warning and as a way forward. Ezekiel's job as a prophet is to get Israel's attention. They are addicted to their idolatry like children become addicted to screens. And by children, I mean anyone with a smartphone. Ezekiel's job is to wake them up, to clap their hands, wave them around, do crazy things to say, Israel, listen, you are in trouble and it's only going to get worse unless you snap out of it. He wants to wake them up, get them to hear, to tune in, to pay attention, and to respond to God. He wants to break their attention, their addiction, from their idols and awaken them to the God, to the word that he has. So, so, so the job of Ezekiel is to get Israel's attention. This is the job of any prophet, to speak to those who don't want to be spoken to, those whose ears are stopped up or eyes are turned away in blindness to what God has really been intending to say. So prophets come. We see a picture of Ezekiel here eating a scroll as a metaphor for ingesting and receiving God's word in Revelation and delivering those words to his people. Now, you might be like me and ask, well, if God's trying to get a message to people, why doesn't he just show up and give them the message? Why waste all this time with prophets who aren't going to be listened to, that will be ignored and likely killed? That seems rather inefficient on a God who's supposed to be all wise. It doesn't seem very proactive. They give the revelation and the vision to these prophets. Why not, in a dream, deliver the same message to all people at the same time? Surely, then people would get it. And I think that's a fair question. It's a natural question. We don't have to dismiss that or minimize that. We can ask from time to time why God isn't like us. But the asking of that question should then lead us inevitably to the same answer, which is because God isn't like us, he does not act like us. In fact, we can answer the question several ways. One, we can say God doesn't do that the way we would or think he should, actually because the premise of that very question is mistaken. When we wonder why God isn't just already showing himself to people, we assume that he's only acting and revealing himself in one way. But the truth is, he is less hidden than people tend to think he is. Paul makes the same point in the opening chapters of Roman, that God has made himself clearly visible. It's obvious to all those who look out into nature and see that God is real. We can see his divine attributes and his power clearly displayed in the creation. And more than that, we can look within our own communities, in our own lives, even our own hearts and consciences and say, yeah, there's a God. Now, the problem isn't with God's revelation. It's with sin, which distorts and suppresses that truth, which is seen and clear to everyone. So he is less hidden than people tend to think he is. God isn't some riddle to be figured out. He isn't somebody trying to play a game that people want to play hide and seek. No, God is obvious to those who have eyes to see. The problem is our eyes have been corrupted and blinded by sin. But he is there nonetheless. Secondly, we can also answer this objection in the way that we say that he has indeed gone above and beyond even that general revelation. That he has shown himself in myriads of wondrous ways and works throughout history that were extremely obvious to the people at the time. Just read the history of Israel as they were led out of Egypt into the wilderness. The many works that God did to prove that he was in their midst. And they were extremely convinced of it at the time. The ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna which fell from the sky. They literally followed him in a pillar of fire and a cloud of glory as they wandered through the wilderness together. It was clear to them that God was in their midst. And so we must say that from time to time, God has manifested himself in specific but clear ways above and beyond what is generally observable and clear to all of us throughout creation. 
And so we think that if we had just seen a clear vision of the Lord, a clear manifestation of his power and glory, if he just gives us this vision, then we would listen and obey. Well, history seems to contradict that truth. Lastly, we may see from Scripture that God doesn't just give everybody the same vision the way he gives to prophets, because he does desire earnestly that people seek him, desire that they would follow after him. We can deal with the ethical or moral question about whether God has to or needs to have people seek him in a particular way. But it's clear from Scripture that his desire is that people have a heart and a love for him and that they genuinely seek after him. And so he sends prophets, preachers, Christians, evangelists to preach, to proclaim, to live a life that points to the worth and the work of God in their own life and the value of Jesus and the cross for their salvation, so that the desire and the affection of people's hearts and lives could be stirred. And so if you have the objection, why do we need prophets if God can just give me the vision to see, to tell me what he wants me to know? It may be that he wants you to hear, and in hearing, respond in faith, in humble obedience, in affection, and in desire. Well, the history and the situation going on behind the book of Ezekiel is very much that which is going on in Isaiah and going on in Jeremiah. There is rebellious idolatry for generations in the land, and God has been sending prophets to deal with this, telling them to, to turn away from that sin, to reject those idols, to return back to the Lord. For a long time, the law itself was lost and forsaken, but the, the judges and the kings and the rulers of Israel found them and tried to restore them. But even this was not enough, and so more and more prophets would come and tell them of the warning of judgment if they continued and persisted in their sin and their idolatry. Israel was giving themselves over to the gods of other nations, sacrificing to gods of foreign nations. They were engaging in promiscuous and immoral behavior. They were, in a lot of ways, rejecting the God of the covenant for the God of of the nations. So Ezekiel comes, and at this point, Babylon has already taken over Judah. They've begun to move out moment by moment people, and Ezekiel is one of those people that have been carted off to Babylon. Look in the very opening chapters. In the 30th year, the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles in the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw the visions of God. This is Ezekiel in his 30th year, presumably his birthday. He was among the exiles. Now he was training to be a priest and in 30 years was the year and the age at which men who were trained to be priests would enter into the priesthood. But this career and vocation never took off for Ezekiel because for about five years now he was in exile in Babylon and there was no temple for him to administer the priesthood to Israel in. It was far away in Jerusalem. So Ezekiel there is in Babylon. He's in exile, but he's trained to be a priest. He turns 30, which he would normally enter the priesthood, but he's got no priesthood at this point to enter into. And so what happens? God gives him a vision. He still gives him a mission and a ministry. The heavens are opened up and he sees visions of God. And the book of Ezekiel is the visions of God. And Ezekiel's response in obedience to those visions. So this background, this priesthood background, really colors how we should read and understand the book of Ezekiel. And we'll look at specific ways that this bears out. But because of this background, the message of Ezekiel is going to focus on worship. This is what the priest would do. Focus on the worship of God's people there in the temple. So the book of Ezekiel, the message of Ezekiel, focuses on worship as well. Specifically, it focuses on what went wrong in Israel's worship and what God will do about the worship of God's people. And at the center of this message about worship is the glory of God. That's the central theme and focus of Ezekiel, the glory of God. And the glory of God is the outward and visible manifestation 
of all the inward perfections and beauties of God and His attributes. When we speak of the glory of God, we don't mean some nebulous, bright, shining orb, which we paint around God as a bright light. We mean the visible, overwhelming, effulgent manifestation of everything that makes God God, His beauty, His attributes, on display for others to see and behold. So when the Bible speaks of the glory of God, it speaks of the radiance of his character, of everything that makes God, God. And it is that this radiance, this glory, this manifestation of the beauty and the perfection of God, the godness of God, that is at the center of the message of Ezekiel as we speak about the worship or the false worship of Israel. So this is all about the glory of God. So as we study Ezekiel this morning, we're going to do so through the scope of these visions that Ezekiel has. Specifically, we'll look in three visions of God mentioned throughout the book. The first is here, perhaps the most famous of visions. Then slightly further down into chapter 8 through 10, we see the vision, another vision of God. It's glory given to Ezekiel in regard to the temple. And then towards the end of the book, a final vision given to Ezekiel of what God will do. The first vision is a vision of God's greatness. The second vision is a vision of God's holiness. And the third is a vision of God's faithfulness. So the visions of God that Ezekiel receives and communicates that we will study this morning is first a vision of God's greatness, secondly a vision of God's holiness, and third a vision of God's faithfulness. Let's consider the first there, the vision of God's greatness. In chapters 1 through 3, we see that the heavens open up and a vision is given to Ezekiel. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 1 that the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, the land of the Chaldeans by the Shabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And what's the vision? I looked and behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness all around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces. And each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight. The soles of their feet were like the soles of calf's foot. They were sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings of the four sides had a human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings like this. Their wings were touching one another. And each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. And as for the likeness of the faces, each had a human face. And the four had a face of a lion on the right side. The four had a face of an ox on the left side. And four had a face of an eagle. And such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above. And each creature had two wings, each of, uh, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. And wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. And as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And there was fire, bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro like an appearance of a flash of lightning. Now, this is a fantastical vision. People have tried to draw this, and it looks crazy. And you can be sure that even they have fallen short of what the reality was truly like. Now, this is a vision, so let's not assume that this is exactly what's going on around the throne of God at any given moment. This is a vision that God gave to Ezekiel in order to communicate something. And we're going to see what that is in just a moment. But the vision goes on in verse 15. Now, as I looked the living creatures at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each four of them. And as for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and the construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels beside them went. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, they, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, these wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in 
the wheels. And over the heads of the living creatures, there was a likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And on and on he goes, a fantastic vision of this scene. But then comes in verse 26, really the central point of this vision. He goes on to say, And above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in the appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was a brightness around him. And the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud, the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness. All around. And such was the appearance of the likeness, notice what he calls this, of the glory of the Lord. So, what does he understand this vision to show him? Not some fantastical creatures, not a scene from some psychedelic movie of the 70s. He understands this scene inherently to be a scene of the glory of God a picture, a vision of the court of heaven where God sits on his throne. Notice the response there at the end of verse 28. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So in this vision comes the center of the glory of God. And this vision is what will dictate everything that Ezekiel will do. And he does many strange and odd things in response to this vision. This vision here is to show us God's glory, to give us a glimpse of God's glory. Specifically, what we see described here in these various metaphors and visions is the power of God set on display. Anytime in in Scripture we see, especially in the Old Testament, the visions of God, a throne, it is to show and display God as powerful, sovereign king over all creation. Notice that he bowed down and worships not at the sight of these creatures, as insane as they might have been. He does not bow down and worship the angels or the other creatures or the wheels or the torches that seem to be passing to and fro. It is when he sees the throne and one who takes the shape of a man on that throne does he fall down before the glory of God in worship. He understands that what he sees is more than he can possibly understand and perceive. He's beholding in some small fraction of the reality of the, of the truth God's power and sovereignty He's trying to capture a bit of what God is really like. He's lived to tell the tale. These wheels with eyes all around them and these creatures with four wings and these moving of various directions and the torches that go to and fro and the fire and the metal and the heat and the light and the brightness of it all is to send one clear message that God is there and that God is awesome that he is the Almighty, and that nothing compares to this God. He is unlike any other. It is a message both to Ezekiel, but also to those who would hear Ezekiel's vision as he recounts this story of how God showed him in some small way the glory of God. We see his omniscience, his all-knowing, the eyes which see in his omnipresence, which can travel in any direction at all times and in all ways. This is intended on the part of God to overwhelm Ezekiel, to capture and overwhelm the senses, to attack the mind's attention, to inundate the heart's affection. In fact, in verse 15 of chapter 3, this was so overwhelming for Ezekiel that he said that he had to take a full week to recover before he could do anything. He went back to the exiles and sat for a week before the Lord again spoke. So this vision here is of God's greatness, of his glory, overwhelming to the senses. There's not many 
descriptions of God's glory like this in the scripture. It's unique because it attaches itself to all of the senses and the imaginations of the human mind, doesn't it? We see, of course, God in a throne or in heaven, full array and glory and in majesty, but it's these creatures and it is this scene which best captures the attention and the imagination of all those who would dwell and contemplate the glory of God. We tend to think of God the way our artists have painted him or attempted to, in ways that our minds can rightly conceive him. But the point of this vision, friends, is that you cannot conceive of God accurately. You can only conceive of God in the small but tangible ways he's revealed himself to you. And so as we consider the vision of God's glory here to Ezekiel, we must not take it as the only full and complete version of the glory of God, but as a glimpse into what he is really like. And our response should be that of Ezekiel's wonder, amazement, bewilderment, awe. Ezekiel's response, much like Isaiah's was in Isaiah chapter 6, when he saw the holiness of God, was to fall down and to worship him there in verse 28. And friends, this is the whole point that Ezekiel is going to make, is that it is the glory of God which must drive our worship. It cannot be anything else. When you come to church, you come to worship God, hopefully. If you're a Christian, your whole life is lived to worship and glorify God. And if worship and the glory of God is not the central reason, the theme of your life, that it is not biblical Christianity and it is not biblical worship. Worship which is not centered on and is not in praise of the glory of God. Remember, the, the beauty and the majesty and the manifestation of everything that God is in His character, the godness of God, if worship is not centered on and in, in praise of God's glory, then it is not biblical worship. One of the reasons that we spend so much time doing the kinds of things we do on Sundays is to make sure that at the center of our worship and our liturgy is not worship of man, but worship of God. And at the center of the songs we sing, and the scriptures we read, and the prayers we pray, and the way that we interact with one another during our services is so that the glory of God would be central to what we do here. Now, we may not walk away with the same sort of bewilderment and wonder that Ezekiel had in this vision, Hopefully, many of you are not trancing out and seeing wheels with eyes spinning and darting to and fro. You might have had some old communion juice if that's the case. But instead, the point here is to look and wonder and behold of God's glory made available for us to see. Not only in his word, but in the very person and work of Jesus, who is the personification of the glory of God. More of that later. Before we consider more of the message of what God says, he does begin to speak, because he says, I hear the voice of one speaking. Before we consider the message of God in this vision, I want you first to consider the means. Notice that he is not in Jerusalem, that the presence and glory of God was revealed to Ezekiel not in the temple where he would be serving as a priest, but on the banks of some canal in Babylon, in captivity, in enemy territory, in those who have come and will ultimately destroy the temple where God's glory once dwelled, where his name once rested. This is revelation to God's people in exile. And this is a beautiful thing for us to behold, that God in his glory is available to us no matter where we are in life and no matter what our circumstances may be. Though for a time he gave his name and his power and his glory to rest in one particular place, one location in the temple. But far be it from us to assume that God's glory would ever truly be contained by an ark, by a room in the back of a temple. God's glory cannot be contained. And so it should comfort us, friends, that we can receive God's glory and God's revelation in any circumstance. We can take it with us here in Fredericksburg or halfway across the world to another country. We can read it in the darkest of our circumstances, and we can feast and behold in God's glory and the greatest of our triumphs. Revelation comes to us in many different ways, and it comes to us today in our own exile. The Apostle Peter says that Christians are elect exiles in the world, and we still have his hope, his word, and his guidance 
His revelation comes to his people despite their circumstances. He is not limited by location or geography. He shows himself to his prophet and to his people despite where they may be. Again, consider the means, not just revelation in the midst of exile, but the means of which this message comes, the medium. It is his glory which is the message. In this case, the old saying is true, the medium is the message. God's glory comes. He does not first give him words of wisdom or more laws to write down. He does not give him a path or a strategy to defeat his enemies. Instead, the medium is this scene, this beatific scene, this glory, this effulgence of God's glory, and that's the point. He is first to be overwhelmed with his image of the beauty and the glory of God before he is told and commissioned to do anything else about it. This is the point of the revelation which comes to us, friends. The whole point of the Bible, in case you have not been made aware, is the glory of God. It is that God alone is to be praised. He is glorious above all others. There is nothing higher than Him. He is the God of all gods. We are to see, understand, behold, and praise God in His glory. There's much which vies for our attention today, much which we can behold as glorious in our culture and in our society, much which tell us that there is something worthy in these things, but compared to God, nothing is truly glorious. And so what we need in difficult seasons is not encouragements which fall flat or fall short. It's not to develop some new habits or way of thinking that promises to renew our spirit or give us more motivation to face our day. Instead, it is the revelation of the glory of God. What we need when we are in exile is the revelation of the glory of God to behold God in His splendor and to behold Christ in His glory and majesty. This is how God intends to be seen, known, and understood. So He makes it clear to Ezekiel who will intend to make it clear to His people that what they need most of all is a true vision of the glorious God to remind them, to wake them up from their sin and slumber to the beauty of who God is. At times this glory may come in fear and in terror. And at times it might come with overwhelming reverence and awe. But the beauty and the vision of God's glory must be the central vision of our lives as we look to Christ who is the glory and the beauty of God. So this first vision we see a picture of God's greatness on full display. And then we get to the message and the message we see is this in chapter 2. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him saying, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel the nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent, impudent and stubborn. So I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, they will know that a prophet has been among them. He'll tell them it's going to be difficult, it's going to be hard, they're not going to want to listen to you, but that's your job. You have to do it well. And so chapters 2 or 4 through 24 is Ezekiel doing his job, and he does it in a myriad of ways. And these chapters depict Israel's unorthodox tactics. They're God's tactics, really, but Ezekiel was doing many strange things that would garner the attention of those around him in order to communicate God's word. And so just a quick overview or summary of a few of these. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Ezekiel is instructed to draw a picture of Jerusalem under siege on a brick, a clay tablet, and then set up a miniature siege against it. So a grown man, a priest, 30 years old, playing with a brick in the middle of the city to try to communicate that God was going to lay siege to Jerusalem. Later in chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, Ezekiel is then told to lie on his left side for 390 days, and then on his right side for 40 days. This symbolizes the years of Israel's sins and Judah's sin, respectively. 
There he would lie on his side where all could see for over a year. Strange this man would be. Again in chapter 4, he has to make and eat bread that he has made from various grains and beans cooked over initially human dung. But God being gracious allowed him to do it over cow. But this, of course, was to symbolize the scarcity of food and the plight of his people once the siege does come. This, by the way, is what you can buy in stores today called Ezekiel bread, kind of taken after this, but I, I suspect they leave out the dung part. In chapter 5, Ezekiel shaves his head and his beard. He takes all of his hair and he cuts it up with a sword, dividing it into thirds. One third, striking another with a sword and scattering the last. He burns one third, he sets up one with a sword and he scatters the last of the wind to show how all the people of Israel would be scattered by the siege and yet even a few of them remain on his garment and are saved, thus resembling the remnant that Israel would be saved. Later in chapter 12, Ezekiel enacts the scene of an exile. He packs his belongings and then he starts digging through the wall in the middle of the night that he might go out. A man in the middle of the night digging through the wall instead of using a door. And this, of course, God says, is to symbolize the future exile of the people, even including the king, Zedekiah at the time, who would also be let out. Again, later in chapter 12, God instructs Ezekiel to eat and drink with trembling in order to show people that the fear and the anxiety that they will be burdened with when they experience the invasion. So this is a man who is obeying God, faithful to this message, and yet is acting strangely according to this vision and revelation. You can see then that this is, this is the ministry of a man desperate to wake Israel up from their sleep and slumber. That normally just preaching from the middle of the town square wasn't going to do it. He had to do crazy things. And yet, nothing that he does seems to make any difference. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 33, he says this, as God reminds him of his mission, As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and the doors of your houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, Come, let's hear what the Lord, what the word has that comes from the Lord. And so they would come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to, to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. What's God saying? And they're going to love you. They're going to really like you but not in the way that they should. They're going to wonder, well, what's Ezekiel up to now? What's this guy doing? Oh, he's laying, oh, this is like the third day in a row. Oh, he's going to keep going? What's he eating? Oh, no, he's cooking that over what? And so this becomes the talk of the town. They come to hear and be entertained by Ezekiel, but the message is lost on them. So we continue on to another glorious vision of the Lord, not simply from the greatness of God, but to the holiness of God. This point we come to chapter 8 and we see that God reveals himself again. In this vision, Ezekiel glimpses how bad really things are. So look in chapter 8. He gets this picture. It says, we'll read this entire chapter, it's short enough. It says, in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me, and then I looked to behold a form that had the appearance of a man. Behold, what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness. Again, this is the man that was on the throne in the beginning in chapter 1. Verse 3, he put me out of form of hand, and he put out the form of a hand, and he took me by the lock of a head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. So he gets a vision of God, this glorious vision of God again, who transports him from 
Babylon in a vision to the temple in Jerusalem. And what does he see? There at the very entrance of the gateway of the inner court where worship is to take place of God, he sees the image of jealousy, a statue of a false god. Verse 4, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the valley. So there he's transported to the temple and he sees with the glory of God a statue of a false god in the temple itself. And he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. And so I lifted up my eyes to the north, and behold, the, behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you'll see greater abominations. And so he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And he said, Dig in the wall. And so I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. And so I went in, and there I saw engraved on the wall all around every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. Before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and they were standing, each with a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense that went up. And he said, look, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the, in the dark? Each one in his room of pictures. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He has said to me, you will, not, you will still see greater abominations. So there they try because God seems to abandon them to worship these false idols, pictures drawn. Verse 14, then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. This was a cultural God as well. And he said, look, have you seen this son of man? You will still see greater abominations. And he brought me to the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here? Woke me to still further anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. He shows Ezekiel exactly what has gone wrong with the worship of the people. They have completely abandoned God's word and worship. He gets a glimpse of how bad things really are. Eventually, this leads God's glory then to depart. Look in chapter 10, verse 18. The vision goes on. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And eventually, he would go. He would leave. So the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. And in this vision... Much like he saw in the first, there is something to be communicated. In the first, we saw the vision of God's glory, power, supremacy, and sovereignty. But here we see a vision, a glorious vision of God's righteousness, of his holy anger, of his judgment. He was white hot, ready to be unleashed against the rebellious and idolatrous people. And notice that here it does not say that he simply departed from the temple so much as God was actually driven out of the temple by his own people. There in verse 6 of chapter 8, he says very clearly, do you see what they are doing? This great abominations the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. The Lord is grieving, angry, that he is being driven out of his temple by the people that should be worshiping him. He was driven out by his own people. But friends, is this same sin any different today? Many churches today want the presence and power of God to be felt and experienced among them. Many of us cry out that God would indeed dwell in power among us. Churches today no doubt are singing songs about the power and the presence of God among them. It's common that churches would want the presence and power of God, but these churches may be so filled with idolatry, so enamored with false preoccupations, that there is effectively no room 
and little taste for God. Though their songs claim to desire God's power and presence to manifest itself, if he were really to do so, we fear that it might be in judgment, not in glory. Well, friends, if we want revival, if we want God indeed to show up in our midst powerfully, then we must seek to recover and preserve the sanctity of our worship. The scriptures lay out for us how God's people are to approach God in worship. And friends, it is not to turn our backs from God and worship the Son. It is not to dress ourselves up with fine linens and cloths and jewelries and to parade around with one another. It is not to worship the false idols of our culture or our times. It is not to turn our attention to some theology that we've made up in our minds. It is to turn our attention and fix our sight on the glory of God. Little churches do this today. But if we want and seek revival, we must recover and preserve the sanctity of the worship of God centered on the glory of God. See, Jesus in his day drove out money changers from the temple. Friends, we must drive out the currency of our own culture from the worship of the saints. We may not be trading on the gospel here, but what sin, what idolatry has crept in by way of the culture or by way of unchecked sin and unrepentant attitudes towards the Lord that we too, like Christ, must drive out from among our worship and our gathering. Well, this picture of God's glory goes on through to chapter 24. And there we see ultimately that the destruction and the fall of Jerusalem becomes manifest. Look in chapter 24 and verses 15 through 17. It says that the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the light of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. He says he's got another ministry opportunity for Ezekiel. And this ministry opportunity, much like others, will be something that communicates to God's people what God is going to do. But in this case, Ezekiel's wife dies. But he is not allowed to mourn or weep. And so he spoke to the people in the morning, and that evening my wife died, it says in verse 18. And on the next morning I was... I did as I was commanded. The people came to me. Will you not tell us what these things mean and why you are acting this way? And he says to them, Thus the word of the Lord came to me, Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the word of the Lord, Behold the sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, the yearning of your soul, and of your sons and your daughters whom you left behind, they shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat of the bread of men, your turbans, shall be on your heads and your shoes and your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Nothing's going to change, he says. Thus Ezekiel shall be to you a sign. According to all that he has done, you shall do. This comes when you will know that I am the Lord God. So the Lord says, I'm going to take the temple away. The pride of Israel will be destroyed. And thus it comes. Inevitably, Babylon eventually destroys the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem is final. At this point, there's great lament, but the attention then turns not from the judgment and discipline of Israel, but then a message of hope begins to come out of Ezekiel's ministry. And God's judgment turns to the other nations in chapters 25 through 32. Nation after nation after nation is promised to be taken down and Israel will be restored again. Just as a glimpse of this, go to chapter 28 and look in verse 25. Chapter 25, in chapter 28, verse 25, Thus says the Lord God, When I gather the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered, this remnant, and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob. This is a promise of restoration. And they shall dwell securely in it, and they shall build houses and plant vineyards, and they shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. So there comes this promise of God's judgment no longer against his people, but against their enemies. What we saw earlier in the book is that he promises to give all of his wrath on his people, but when his wrath has been satisfied, then his judgment and his justice will be turned to his enemies. So this is a vision mostly here of God's holiness. 
by which we already see the sanctity of worship, but from this vision of God's holiness, we see a glimmer of hope that he again will begin to restore because he's not simply a God of holiness, but a God of justice and of righteousness. And so he will restore his people. The last vision we see comes from the end of the book. It's a vision of God's faithfulness. There in chapter 40, you can turn there and see what Ezekiel begins to see. After the judgments laid out against all, the, all of the, the pictures against the nations, we see later that God then, through chapters 33 through 39, intends to revive and restore Israel. Even though it has been corrupted and devastated by their sin, and God has laid their temple and their way of life to waste, God intends to revive. We see there the, the beautiful picture of the Valley of Dry Bones where Ezekiel goes and preaches and they come to life, and sinews and flesh and muscle begins to cover over them, and they are living again because of the Spirit that brings them to life. And through these imageries and these visions, God intends to revive and restore Israel despite its corruption and its destruction. And we get to chapter 40, where another vision of God's faithfulness, a glorious vision of God's faithfulness, is revealed to Ezekiel, where the temple is rebuilt. It says there, in the 20th year of our exile, the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, the city was struck down. On that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. Again, another vision. And in visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance, again, like bronze with a linen cord and measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of God, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I show you. For you were brought here in order that, you might sh- that I might show it to you and to declare all of this that you see to Israel. Behold, there was a wall around the outside of the temple and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six cubits long, each being a cubic. And so he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed. And he goes on, much like the book of Exodus does in the measuring in the building of the tabernacle and then the temple. And we see this rebuilding and restoration of the once destroyed temple of God. And here in this vision, it is the rebuilding of the temple and the returning again of God to dwell in the midst of his people that is a vision of God's faithfulness. He continues to show how he will dwell again in the midst of his people. So there at the end in chapter 43, we see that then he led me to the gate the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of God, of the God of Israel, was coming from the east. Remember, he departed from that direction, and now he sees that he comes back, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, and the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had that, when he, that I saw by the canal, and I fell on my face, because the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and behold, the glory filled the temple. So now we see a complete restoration and a reversal of the destruction, and the Lord, which once departed with its glory or was driven out from the temple, now returns to this new rebuilt and repurposed temple. Now this isn't simply talking about the temple that would be rebuilt again under the direction of Nehemiah and Ezra, but of a future coming temple where God would dwell. We know this because there's a description here of the river that would flow through, first beginning from the temple in small drips and trickles, but ultimately through the land as a flowing river that gives life. This is a picture, of course, that reminds those who are astute Bible readers of the river that flows through the temple in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. In fact, we see at the end of the book, in chapter 48, that this place has a name. Chapter 48, verse 35, we said that the name of the place of that city where the river runs through is the Lord, is there. For those who are called the Garden of Eden, we see that a river ran through it that gave life to all that was in it. And the Lord indeed was there. So, exactly like the Garden of Eden, God gives a faithful vision to Ezekiel of what is to come a renewed hope a restored city, and a restored people. Now, why does God do all of this? Why would he deliver judgment? 
Why would he allow the judgment to fall on Israel, then the nations, and ultimately to restore them? Why is he all of, doing all of this? Well, the phrase we see over and over and over again is that this is done, that they would know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel's ministry over and over again, however strange and entertaining it may have been to watch, was sought to turn up the volume on God's warnings of judgments and devastation as a result of the constant rebellion of God's people. But more than this, the purpose of the knowledge, which they were to know that God is there, it was to lead them to repentance and restoration, but not for themselves. The point was not for the sake of Israel, but because God alone is worthy of the worship that they often offer to other idols. Just look in chapter 36, and we see why God does what he does. In chapter 36, verse 22, we read, I turn there, Behold, say to the house of Israel, Thus said the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name to which which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I have vindicated my holiness before their eyes. So the point is not the holiness or the vindication of the people, but the glory and the holiness of God. Why does he do it? For his great name. Psalm 15, 115, verses 1 through 9. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? For our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in the throat. Those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He does this to reveal himself as glorious. Friends, that's the vision Ezekiel calls you to have this morning. The vision of a glorious God who stands before you in splendor and majesty. But how does he do this? Notice he calls Ezekiel over and over again the son of man. This is a famous phrase we see also in the picture of Daniel. The Son of Man, he says, will come to bear the sins of the world. Ezekiel, as the Son of Man, comes and bears the burden and guilt of his side there in chapter 4. So will the Son of Man come to bear the guilt of the world. God says that he will send a shepherd, not like the corrupt and useless shepherds or the leaders of the people, but one who will be a good shepherd to come and rule and lead his people in righteousness. He will, in chapter 34, come and grant his people a covenant of peace. Of course, all of this leads us to Jesus, whose favorite title for himself was the Son of Man, who is the good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep, who is the chief shepherd, as the Apostle Peter calls him, who is the Son of God and man, and who by his blood establishes a covenant, a new covenant of peace with us. And so of the wondrous visions of God's glory that we glimpse in Ezekiel, friends, know that it is only in Christ that this glory is perfectly, completely, and finally revealed to us. Hebrews 1 puts it this way, that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So the exact imprint of the nature and the glory of God is not the several winged creatures with various eyes and faces or the wheels that spin around but seem to go in only one direction. No, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature is the person of Jesus. That's the most full and complete picture of God's glory that exists. John puts it this way in John chapter 1, that he is the word of God who became flesh and who dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how does God reveal all the purposes and promises he has in his faithfulness, his holiness, and his glory, it is through Christ, and Christ who gives his spirit to us. Just as God did not leave his remnant without hope and help in their distress, neither has he left us without our own source of divine aid. As we behold the glory of God, we behold it in the spirit of God. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, you have received that spirit which gives us life, 
leads us to trust and see in Christ the beauty and the glory of God made manifest. But if you're not a Christian, you look at Christ and you see him perhaps as a good teacher, someone who has wise sayings, maybe a semi-historical figure but shrouded in myth and legend we cannot fully, truly, or historically know. Friends, know that it is not until your eyes will be opened will you truly have the hope from your corruption. You will truly live when your eyes are opened and you see, like, a, like Ezekiel, the vision of the Lord which overwhelms you. And we are moved to faithfulness and obedience to God. And until that moment, like Israel, you are under condemnation and wrath. My prayer is through our study of Ezekiel this morning, your eyes have in some sense been opened and your hearts have been enlightened to the glory and the beauty of God, that you may, throughout your reading this week, sit in awe and wonder how God has revealed himself beautifully, wondrously to us in Christ, who died for our sins on the cross, but was risen in glory on the third day, who sits now at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us, who has with the Father sent his Son, that we are a divine source of aid and strength to walk faithfully in this world, rejecting the corruption of our sin, trusting in the power and the glory of grace in the Christian life, resting in the work he has provided and not on our own. This is what it means to be a Christian, that our sins which have caused us to sleep have been destroyed and conquered, and we have been woken up to the beauty and the glory of God through his gospel. Let's pray. Father, there's much to be said about the book of Ezekiel that commends its reading. So I pray that there has been enough here to awaken in our hearts and our souls the beauty of your glory. And I ask, God, that you would continue to work this week in our conversations and in our prayers and in our reading of your word, a sense of that glory that weighs on us as we go throughout our day. Father, we ask that you would continue to show and reveal yourself to us in a, in a myriad of ways through your word, through your provision and care, but mostly as we send and set our eyes on Christ, who is the radiance of the glory and the exact imprint of your nature. We thank you, God, for this word. We pray that you would make it conform our hearts to its, to its commands. So, God, we give ourselves to you, as always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Be a sinner, double cure, save from wrath. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.
See the 